for our time, even though it's a story from very long ago, 250 years after the time of the Buddha. The story of King Asoka. Some of you may have heard of King Asoka. He was a king of a large territory in what is now northern India. And he ruled for over 30 years. And in his first years, he was known as a very brutal king, unkind to his people, at war with the neighboring kingdoms. It was said that in the wars that he led, 100,000 people died. And in those years, he deported. He deported 150,000 people from his kingdom. It's kind of a surprise to me that the deportations were prevalent even at that time. So after one particularly bloody battle, the king was walking across the battlefield and saw the carnage on the battlefield. And then he also saw a monk walking across the battlefield, serene, at peace, even amongst that carnage. And the king was moved by the serenity of the monk and stopped to speak with him. I think of what the monk might have done. He might have come upon that scene and his path of travel that was taking him through the battlefield, he might have thought, that's unpleasant. It's disturbing. I don't want to go that way. I'm going to walk toward the forest where it's pleasant and pleasurable. But instead, he continued on his path. He might have gotten angry when the king spoke to him, said, look what you've done. How could you do this to these people? but he didn't get angry. He might have simply closed up. In effect, put blinders on, ignored the king and walked by. But he didn't do that either. When the king asked him, how is it you come to be at such a level of peace? The monk replied by sharing the Buddha's teachings. And that was such an inspiration to the king that he became a practitioner. So that monk was acting from a place of right intention, the intention of renunciation, the intention of goodwill, of loving kindness, and the intention of non-harming, which manifests as compassion in response to suffering practicing with the very same right intention we're practicing with here today. So the king became a practitioner, as did his son and his daughter. And the practice was carried from his kingdom to Sri Lanka and then to Burma. So that's the lineage of our Theravada Vipassana practice that traces back to Burma, and you could say traces all the way back to that monk who remains nameless. I really feel it's an inspiring story for our time. We don't know how our actions, our words, our actions might impact the world. 
when we act and speak from a place of peace. So practicing with these intentions of renunciation, of kindness, of non-harming, are especially useful in our practice with the five hindrances. The five hindrances that cloud the heart, cloud the mind, also referred to as attachments. Now, this is a reason we emphasize these qualities of renunciation, of kindness, non-harming, through the five precepts again and again, to support our practice and challenges in practicing with the five hindrances. Some words from the Buddha. Luminous is this mind brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand and so do not cultivate the mind. And then luminous is this mind brightly shining and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This the noble follower of the way really understands. So for them, there is cultivation of the mind, the cultivation that we're practicing with it right here. As we practice with the hindrances, it, it really becomes a, a key part of our practice that because these hindrances prevent the natural clarity and luminosity of the mind that the Buddha referred to. So as we practice with the hindrances, they begin to drop away, to fade away, and we begin to open to this luminosity and clarity. So we're, we practice to support the conditions for the dropping away of the hindrances, and then to use skillful means to support this process. As the hindrances subside and mindfulness strengthens, concentration strengthens, there's naturally a greater sense of curiosity, of investigation, and a greater sense of energy for the practice. And this leads to insights leads to clarity into the truth of the way things are, begins to open the heart, to release the heart from confusion, the purification of the heart-mind. So you could say the practice with the hindrances is at the, is at the very heart of our practice. So the five hindrances are greed, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness, and doubt. And of course, the Buddha has a metaphor for these. The Buddha often has metaphors for practice, very useful in helping to remember his teachings. And the metaphor is water. And he compares greed to being like a water with colored dye in it. And aversion to being like boiling water or turbulent water. Compares sloth and torpor to water overgrown with algae. And restlessness to being like water stirred up by the wind. And doubt like muddy water. The commonality here is that the lack of clear water because the 
forces of these hindrances cloud the water. It's a lack of clarity. Ultimately, through the practice of water is found to be perfectly pure, perfectly clear, perfectly still. But we need to engage in this practice to open to that purity. There's nothing wrong when these hindrances arise. They are a central element of our practice. And it's key to remember that even for the Buddha, right up until the very end of the path, on the night before his awakening, when he realized complete freedom and liberation under the Bodhi tree, the force of doubt arose in the form of Mara, Mara being the symbol of the figure of the forces of greed, aversion, and delusion. And Mara said to the Buddha, who are you to realize Buddhahood? Who are you to realize complete liberation? And the Buddha said, effectively, I see you. And the Buddha put his hand to the ground and said, I have a right to be here. a real inspiration, something I do sometimes in practice, to put my hand to the ground and say, I have a right to be here. And that uh, figure of Mara appeared many times in the suttas uh, from the Buddha's teachings. And in the stories, the Buddha often would say, I see you, Mara. In effect, I welcome you. That's what we are called upon to do in practice as well. A quote from Joseph Goldstein. When we attend to these states carefully, we learn to see in their, into their empty, transparent nature, and so no longer get caught up in their seductive power. So we attend to the states, we see their empty nature not who we are, simply arising from causes and conditions. Transparent, without substance, arising and passing away. And as we see that, then they lose their seductive power. And Joseph goes on to say, they then become the focus of our mindfulness and the very vehicle for our awakening. So they support our awakening. So our practice is to be present, to open, to welcome the five hindrances, to use the anchor of the body, to be more and more intimate of the here, of the direct experience when the hindrances arise. Welcoming all of these visitors. The key instructions are to recognize and tend and attend to the hindrances, to know when they're present, and then to know when they're not, to know their absence and appreciate the absence, appreciate the calm, ease, tranquility, peace that might be present when the hindrances subside. And then use the tools of practice wisely to support the fading away of the hindrances. A quote from Utejaniya, 
Learning to face the defilements allows you to investigate and understand their nature. And this will help you transcend them. So again, the presence of the hindrances are not wrong. There's no failure when the hindrances arise. They provide the opportunity to investigate our experience and allow the hindrances to lose their power when we see and know them directly. And this leads in the direction of opening to the possibility of peace. Moments of peace, the possibility of a greater peace that's not dependent on the conditions of the world. Opens in the direction of seeing and knowing things as they are. Releasing the heart from confusion. So taking refuge, undertaking the precepts, the importance of ethical conduct, as Brian talked about last night, is a key support for working with the hindrances. So when we're present on retreat, following the five precepts, following the precepts of non-harming, then the heart and mind are not rattled. It becomes a more settled harmony, a sense of harmony with our own hearts, harmony with the sangha, harmony with the truth of the way things are. Brian provided the beautiful description that as we follow the precepts, engage in ethical contact, it provides a link to something bigger that is transformative. A key lesson I experienced one time on retreat, I was on a self-retreat, really deep in practice after about eight days. And uh, in my little cottage that I had, it was very hot, must have been about 108 degrees. And the spiders seemed to come out and uh, saw a black widow. And it was right next to my leg and I swatted that black widow. And it so disturbed the practice. I was so shaken by not adhering to the five precepts. It's a really valuable lesson that energized my practice in following these precepts more closely. I actually looked down and saw I'd been bitten by the spider too. Didn't see that till afterwards. Uh, but fortunately, it uh, didn't have any trouble. Just a big, uh, big swelling, no poison. So greed, desire. As the Buddha said, it's like water with dye in it. Sometimes the description is it's like ro- wearing rose-colored glasses. I learned uh, a few months ago that the term rose-colored glasses and and rose-colored glasses themselves were invented after the Civil War. So many soldiers, former soldiers suffering from depression, having been engaged in those battles. And at the time, the experts thought that wearing rose-colored glasses would improve their outlook, have a more positive outlook on the world. So greed, desire, kind of wanting what we like, wanting what is pleasant, wanting what is pleasurable, wanting what is pleasing. It could take the form simply of wanting a return to the peaceful sit that we might have had two hours ago. 
or wanting perfect quiet in the hall or perfect quiet in our dorm room. It can also take the form of if only if, if only. It's kind of a warning bell for greed and desire. Maybe you experience this as if only I were more comfortable, if only this back pain or knee pain would go away, then my practice would really be great. If only I could get rid of this repeating story or this repeating tune, whatever it might be, it's a sign and signal of greed, desire arising. It's rooted in the misperception that there's a controlling self, that there's anyone in control of the unfolding moment, that there's anyone who can make the experience any different than it is. And it's rooted in a misperception that there's anything permanent to hang on to in the material world. Everything we know and love in the world is constantly arising and passing away. So any form of expectation, any form of conditionality is a signal of desire, greed arising. For many people in the world, it takes the form of a desire for sense pleasure, more sense pleasure, more money, more things. Kind of this endless desire that never ends, never quite getting the happiness that people are looking for when they're hooked into attachment to the material things of the world for happiness. My recognition of the material things in the world not being satisfactory was one of the things that brought me to practice. I had all of the material things one could want. I had a nice home, I had a job I loved where I felt I could make a positive contribution to the world. I had a partner I'm still with, a loving partner, been with 24 years. I had a very successful career. And yet it felt like almost like, almost like a death because there was a recognition that there was nothing there that provided lasting happiness. There was some peace missing. And that brought me to practice, to find something more. So the sense of greed and desire can also take the form of wanting our loved ones to behave a particular way. Kind of if, if only my spouse or partner would put away the dirty dishes after every meal, or if only they would just behave a little bit differently, then I could really be happy and loving in this relationship. Story, I had a relationship before um, my current partner, we're dating back a number of years, but we ended a nine-year relationship, and at the end of that relationship, I said to him, I just want you to be happy. I'm making my happiness dependent on his happiness. And he replied by saying, I don't want to be happy. (laughs) Sign of a codependent relationship. (laughs) 
So this desire can be very uh, constrictive. It's kind of never ending. And we can really attach to it with meditative states where we get this sense of now I've got it. I get this really deep meditative state. Feels like something very special and we attach to it. Then we begin looking for it again. Force of greed arising right there. This is something that I certainly got hooked in in practice over the years, that sense of, ah, now this is it, this is it. (laughs) Attaching to this. So in this practice, we're called upon it to see this force, to see desire again and again. Sometimes just the seeing of it, the welcoming of it, it drops away. Sometimes we're present with it longer, going into the direct body experience. As Andrea said this morning, listening to what does the body say now? Paying attention to what does this body say now? With this experience, when the force of greed, desire, wanting is present. Understanding what our experience is like right then, right here. Being aware of contraction or fear or restlessness that might be present as well at that time. So we let go again and again. We let go to the present experience, being right here for the direct experience, being present for the emotions, the body experience, beginning to see through the me, mine, I identification of that experience. Recognizing it's not my greed, it's just the force of greed arising from causes and conditions. So we can also learn to guard the sense doors. We can sometimes catch that moment of going toward desire. We can catch it right before it goes in, into it, right before we get caught can cut this many times, especially at the beginning of a retreat for those who you are just starting, maybe you're experiencing this, maybe those who've been here longer, certainly still arises. A fantasy, maybe it's a sexual fantasy, maybe some other type of fantasy, a very alluring fantasy. And the same fantasy can kind of come up again and again that pulls us away, seemingly pulling us away from the practice. We can guard the sense door. Guard the sense doors. I had a, when I started practice, I gave up my annual trips to Hawaii so I could be here on retreat. And uh, I remember many times being here in February and thinking about the warm sand, being in the water in Hawaii, thinking, did I really make the right choice? <laughs> and then fantasizing about being on the, on the beach in the water and uh, seeing that fantasy play out. Then it started paying more and more attention to where I could just catch the moment of starting to go in and then letting it go. And then using the tools of practice wisely to connect back to the body. In, out, the breath, sensations, hearing. Really returning more deeply with a more committed force to practice. Just a little aside, that beach uh, that I love to go to in Maui is right below our retreat center. It's about 3,000 feet straight up the mountain behind the the beach. And I visited that retreat center one time just for the day, just for a day long. Really beautiful little self-retreat center that's there. And I looked down on the beach and I thought, no way, I could never be on retreat here with my favorite beach 3,000 feet down the slope. 
So the second hindrance is aversion or hatred, not wanting what we don't like, not wanting what is unpleasurable. Buddha compares it to boiling or turbulent water. And we can feel this when there's anger or irritation or agitation present. Sometimes that really feels like turbulent or boiling water. It can arise with physical pain or discomfort, unpleasant thoughts, unpleasant emotions. So again, with aversion, we attend to the aversion. We welcome it. I see you, Mara. Connect to the body. Use the tools of practice. A way that I use this in the last year, about a year ago, the announcement was made from Washington on an effort to prohibit people who are transgender from serving in the military. It felt like a huge step backwards. I felt a lot of anger around it. And seemingly following that, then efforts to roll back lesbian and gay rights. A lot of contraction. And finally, I recognized I was shut down. I could feel the heart was closed. It wasn't immediate. It probably took several days or maybe over a week before I could recognize the heart's closed to this. And then I said, oh yes, there are these tools of practice. What's present? There's contraction in the body. There's aversion. There's tension. It's unpleasant, sadness, fear, anger. Going into the direct experience, then the force of aversion loses its grip. It's like turning the light of awareness on what was present to allow that to drop away. And that allowed the heart to open, allowed the heart to open for the, most, for the people most affected by those announcements, uh, by the direction, uh, the direction that we were going with those announcements as a country. And then I could feel compassion. I could feel kindness. I could feel compassion for myself as well. And then I felt I could speak to those issues from a place of peace, where I was not contracted by the force of aversion and anger. I'd seen that anger the anger had melted away and there was a sense of peace, even in seeing actions that were taken that I felt very strongly were wrong. So another form of aversion can be the impatience that we may all experience at times when we're having an uncomfortable sit, kind of the impatience for the bell to ring, or maybe the impatience for the person in the food line who's very slow Those are opportunities to practice with aversion, to name it and see it, go into the direct experience. Feel the aversion in the body. Really feel where is it felt in the body? How does it change? Where is there a resistance? Be more intimate with the direct experience. There's a tool of RAIN that I'm sure we'll be talking more about, that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Rain being recognizing, accepting, being intimate with, and not identifying. So recognizing what's present, particularly when there's aversion or an afflictive emotion, very strong story that's unfolding, 
using the tool of rain to go into the direct experience. From Utejaniya again, only when you are all, only when you are ready and able to watch difficult emotions are you able to learn from them. Only when you are ready and able to watch difficult emotions are you able to learn from them. When I came into practice, I had a lot of body discomfort, really painful sensations in the abdomen, and it would come up a lot. I really hated those sensations. I thought I just can't be unhappy in life with these sensations, they're so awful. And when I came into practice and told the teachers about this experience and told them about the sensations arising right here in this very room, I said, use a tool of rain, be intimate with a direct experience. So I started naming the qualities, unpleasant, tightness, heat, fear, anger, grief, opening to the emotions and then the stories, letting that light of awareness shine, letting the purification process unfold. This is an important part of the practice. And so often underneath the aversion, there is sadness or anger or fear or grief. Often, almost always fear at the deepest level. Sometimes, too, there can be aversion to aversion, kind of like not wanting to see the underlying force of anger or fear or irritation or impatience. That, kind of, that can be kind of a warning bell to pay attention to that, too, and investigate that direct experience. So we learn, just as I learned from that experience with the painful body sensations, as I worked with that, I realized they were just sensations. Those sensations in this body still arise, but they're no longer painful. They're no longer a problem. Because the second arrow that Andrea referred to this morning is no longer shot. There's still the sensation, but it's no longer a problem. There's no longer a resistance. There's no longer a contention with the present experience. So the aversion to aversion. Hatred, as the Buddha said, hatred never ceases by hatred. Hatred is healed by love alone. This is the eternal law. So these are key words, not only for our practice right here, they're also words for our presence in the world, but not to hate the difficult states that arise. Recognize that it's through the force of loving awareness that the healing happens. And metta can be a powerful tool as well in working with these difficult mind states, difficult, challenging emotions. Actually send metta to parts of the body where these uh, painful sensations or feelings too to support our practice. I want to also remind uh, practitioners, you can always open your eyes. It becomes overwhelming. Something I had to do sometimes in practice, particularly with working with fear. When fear is present, sometimes there can be such a sense of contraction. 
kind of the whole world closing up around the fear where there's nothing else known. We just become too much. It can be true with other emotions or stories as well. So you can always open your eyes. Use that tool, seeing the space in the room, looking out the window, space outside, maybe noting space, space. Just provide some spaciousness so that that fear doesn't seem all-encompassing or whatever difficult emotion might be present. Again, just like with greed, we're present to know when aversion is here to be present with it, with a hearness of it right now, allowing the Dharma to reveal itself, to take care of itself. And that's the way that the wisdom arises. So our job is to simply be present with these hindrances most of all. The third hindrance is sloth and torpor. The name says it. It's that feeling of sloth and torpor. The yuck of water overgrown by algae, as the Buddha said. We really can't see the water at all beneath that yuck of the algae. So it can be sleepiness. It's uh, it's maybe not the formal definition of sloth and torpor, but sleepiness can be a form of sloth and torpor. Most often, it's more a real sinking feeling, very deep sinking feeling in the body and in the mind, or the body or the mind. So we can use a tool of of noting, really going into the direct experience, perhaps to to see where where the sloth and torpor is felt in the body. Maybe to use noting of sleepiness or heaviness, We can also use the tool of opening the sounds. Hearing, 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 hearing. Kind of to open up the spaciousness so the sloth and torpor doesn't seem so all-encompassing. With sloth and torpor too, bringing a sense of energy and wakefulness is is a tool that can be used. So it's maybe taking a few deep breaths, opening the eyes, standing up. No problem standing up. can always stand up for the whole sit or some part of the sit. Sometimes we can even use the noting of sleepiness, sleepy, aware, and then maybe even aware of sleepiness. Maybe even the falling and then the waking up. (laughs) Note all of those forces. It can actually be a way to begin to arouse more energy. Sometimes too, when the mindfulness is strengthened, we can actually turn the attention when sloth and torpor are present to the knowing of the sloth and torpor itself. So turning, in effect, holding the mirror to the knowing of the sloth and torpor. So that may or may not make sense to you. If it doesn't make sense, just, just let it go. It's something you might uh, bring some sense of playfulness to your practice with when sloth and torpor are present. My experience too in, uh, is that sometimes sloth and torpor can arise as a resistance force, resisting force to something coming into awareness. Perhaps some insight that's arising and there's some resistance to opening to that. Or maybe a resistance to a difficult emotion arising. 
So really bringing curiosity, bringing a more focused attention to the direct experience to see what might underlie that sense of sloth and torpor. A restlessness, a fourth hindrance. The Buddha described it being like water stirred up by the wind. So if we're on a lake and a boat, the water may be perfectly clear, but the wind, when the wind is blowing, the water is agitated and we can't see. We can't see the clarity in the water and see below the surface at all because there's no stillness. So we really see and experience that lack of stillness with restlessness. Maybe a sense of agitation, sense of racing in the mind. This is a normal part of practice that sometimes arises. Sometimes it's driven by thoughts about the past or the future. So maybe especially present for those who are just coming onto the retreat and have things that were not quite taken care of before we came here. A tool I've used with that is to keep a little note, just jot down three or four words on that item because otherwise if I don't put it on a piece of paper, it keeps coming back into awareness, kind of the repeating, don't forget this, don't forget this. So I write it down, put it in my suitcase, and I know it's still going to be there when I finish the retreat. Sometimes with restlessness, it results from energy being out of, the bal- out of balance, maybe too much energy. So maybe walking a little faster and our walking practice can, can support us. Maybe going for a longer walk in the morning or at lunchtime, just burning more energy, expending more energy. And again, with restlessness, sometimes a noting tool, sometimes a noting tool to just gather and collect attention, to be aware of them at a more precise level with our primary anchor, perhaps with a breath, with the experience of the full length of the in and the out breath, maybe noting the in and the out or the pause in between, really refining attention by gathering, collecting attention to a single object. And then doubt. Doubt is like muddy water. No visibility whatsoever. Even below the surface of the water, there's no clarity. So it's really the most pernicious of the five hindrances. It can take the form of doubt in this form of practice, doubt in our right to be here, doubt in our doing the practice right, It's a real sense of vacillation that can really just lock up the practice. And so often practitioners don't even see it, don't name it. So it's really important to watch for those as warning signals and recognize that as a force of doubt. Not taking it personally, just this is doubt. This is doubt. This is what doubt feels like. It really provides some spaciousness and ease and begins to reconnect us with our motivation in being here. And that's a great tool to use in working with doubt is to reconnect with our motivation for being here, 
on this two-month-long retreat, on this month-long retreat. Maybe reconnect with our deepest inspiration for practice. Can really energize, build confidence in our practice to overcome the force of doubt. Bowing to the Buddha, bowing to the Dharma, the Sangha. Powerful tool as well. Really powerful tool in strengthening faith. And really simply just recommitting to being here now, being here for the practice fully, for this amazing commitment we're making in our lives to being here for this dedicated period of practice. It's important to recognize that doubt is the very opposite of faith, the very opposite of faith. So faith is a trusting confidence in the heart, trusting confidence in our practice, trusting confidence in our right to be here. And our right to realize a greater happiness, a happiness that's ultimately unconditional. And with that faith, we have that faith to open to, to the innate qualities of the heart, could say to the innate qualities of awareness, the Brahma Viharas that we're teaching a couple of days a week, the beautiful qualities of loving kindness, of compassion, of supportive joy and equanimity. We have a right. We have that right with our practice to open to those beautiful qualities of awareness itself. And as we practice, we allow the veils of confusion to drop away. It's like turning the light on these hindrances, the forces of the defilements of greed, aversion, and delusion to support their dropping away. So our job is to simply, most of all, be present. Know when the hindrances are present. Know when they're absent. Appreciate their absence. Cultivate the future arising of their absence by the appreciation and knowing that direct experience as well. Ultimately, these hindrances can be transcended. That's the direction of our practice. So we begin to open to a happiness that's not dependent on the conditions of the world, not dependent on health or finances, on relationships, on anything else of the world, opening to an unconditional happiness that doesn't need anything to be different than it is. Opening to a peace that's possible in any moment. You could say a peace that's here already. So we welcome the hindrances where we bring intimacy to the direct experience. This is supported by the intention of renunciation, the intention of loving kindness, the intention of non-harming, allowing compassion to arise as a natural force when suffering is present to support our practice. So returning to the Buddha's comparison to water there begins to become clarity in the water as the hindrances subside. And from Ajahn Chah, try to be mindful 
and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still, like a clear forest pool. You will see many wonderful and strange things come and go, but you will be still. Problems will arise and you will see through them immediately. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So the clear water, the perfect purity of heart is already here. It's not about getting anywhere at all. Let's sit for a moment. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still like a clear forest pool. You will see many wonderful and strange things come and go, but you will be still. Problems will arise and you will see through them immediately. This is the happiness of the Buddha. Thank you for your presence.